The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we again um, want to affirm your excellencies. We've declared these things in song. We've affirmed that as we've prayed together, even as we've uh, had times of fellowship and engaging one another just to encourage one another as we see one another, as we see each other face to face, as we share about updates and experiences, they're all reflections of your grace working itself out in our lives, even in the midst of uh, struggles. It's it's demonstrations of the confidence we can have in you and the the joy that centers us. And we do recognize there are those um, within the body who are experiencing greater weight of struggle right now. Um, there's things that um, challenge our confidence and challenge our joy and that produce uh, no measure, no small measure of um, uh, challenge in terms of um, desired outcomes and desired experiences and things that appear to be in conflict with that. But we, we pray, Lord, root us in truth, um, that that would be the anchor which uh, secures us through turbulent and challenging times and help us to think about the fact that we live in a, a broken world that sin has impacted in ways that um, sometimes are more obvious than others. Uh, we recognize that things are, are broken. They're not as they will be. It reminds us, uh, even as we will consider today, that uh, this is not as things will be. Uh, we look expectantly to the new heavens and the new earth um, in which righteousness will dwell. There won't be the impacts of the curse. There won't be the tug and toil of sin. There won't be the things that we presently um, have to, to war with, that which wars with our soul and that which just even wars with our body and war with our, wars with our experience. So we long for that day. We long for it in the sense, just like creation cries out and, and, and desires that day, but even more so, we, we long for that day because we will enjoy your presence and we will... We know that you will be properly honored and exalted. So it's not just a deliverance, as precious as that is, it's a time of exaltation. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we do have a joy and a hope that supersedes the immediate. But we also thank you that there's value to the immediate, there's value to the temporal. We think about your engagement with time and your expression of compassion as time passes. And even thinking about the millennial kingdom, there's value to time. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you that you've um, uh, provided that uh, it's not just get through this temporal life that we can get to the eternal state. It's you've, you've created value with all these things and opportunities to worship you and opportunities to make much of you, opportunities for your character and your glories to be put on display. So we thank you for all these things, Lord. We thank you also for the testimony of the psalmist. We thank you for the testimony of Peter and the prophets and all the things that we get to engage with on a consistent basis. And uh, the concern, though, is that we would fail to pray like the psalmist. And so we do ask, Lord, teach us your word. Teach us your statutes. Help us to understand. We recognize it is your word. We don't want to be so presumptuous or even arrogant to say that we'll just open it. We've done a lot of work, a lot of thought. And let's talk about it now. No, it's your word, Lord. So help us to steward it in a way that reflects that we trust you and that reflects that you are our teacher. Um, you, you use us, but it's your word. And so may we submit ourselves to it accordingly. And again, may you give grace in the hour of need for those who are not with us and grace for those of us who are here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, as you've noticed, uh, we've now read from Psalm 119 two weeks in a row. So I know that we have a pattern of reading the Psalms on Sunday morning, but this particular pattern has, has changed in a little bit because so Psalm 119, two weeks in a row, and before we've, gone, uh, before we've gone to our time in prayer, that's our pattern. So two Wednesdays ago in prayer meeting, we worked through Psalm 119, 1 through 8. And so that was our 
Sunday morning reading last week. And now this last week, we worked through Psalm 119, 9 through 16, and now have read and even sung. I don't know if you caught that, that first song that we sung this morning. It was framed a lot around the verses 9 through 16 of Psalm 119. I know it was a little bit different. Y'all did so well. Acapella is hard, um, but y'all did really well. And so um, we, we sang through Psalm 9 through six, or 119, 9 through 16. So we've read it, we've sung it, we've been in Psalm 119. That's going to be where we're going to be for quite a while. It's a large chapter of the Bible. But even in giving Psalm 119 a simple read-through, one's going to very, very quickly observe its primary theme. So you don't have to have been to prayer meeting the last two weeks. You don't have to even show up in the next three, four, five, ten weeks. We hope you do, but if you don't, you can pick up Psalm 119, read through it, and say, ah, the primary theme is so clear. It's so very, very obvious. And it's specifically the scriptures, right? The word of God, the law of God, the testimonies, the precepts. And they're spoken of 168 times in the Psalms, 176 verses using seven different terms. Now, because of this, it's so very plain that the psalmist has a, a clear affection a clear delight for God's word. He declares it over and over and over again. But even if he never said, I delight in your word, you can just see that, right? You, you can hear it. You know it. That's, it's very plain. But he often declares it. I delight, have an affection for your word. And as we've read today, um, we also see the scriptures are, are powerful and effective in the shaping of the psalmist's life and the preserving of his soul. We see that with the opening of this second section of Psalm 119 that we just read. Namely, how can a young man keep his way pure? How can one stay holy? How can one stay faithful, unstained by this world? By keeping it according to your word. So what the psalmist understood was that the scriptures are a means of cultivating and preserving a life of holy conduct and godliness. Not only in matters of sexual purity, but in the totality of life, as this is a really a shared conclusion by all faithful students of God's word. That's what we know. We know God's word is powerful and effective, transformative. It keeps us. And as we're going to observe today, like the psalmist, Peter includes not only God's precepts, statutes, and commandments as a means of our being kept and strengthened by God for a holy li- for a life of holy conduct and godliness, but also God's promises. Remember those transformative and powerful promises we were introduced to in 2 Peter chapter 1? Well, Peter's going to draw on how do those promises impact us. So God's precious and magnificent promises by which we escape the corruption that is in the world by lust and become partakers in the glory to come. Now, that being said, this is our, our third and final week in this section of 2 Peter. Uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. We've, we've slowed down in this particular section. We've given it three treatments, and you might have noticed that I've titled this section. Each week, I've kept the same title for this small section, God's Gracious Timing and the Fulfillment of His Promise. So again, God's Gracious Timing and the Fulfillment of His Promise. A, a title that I think is especially well-suited for verses 8 through 10. I think that it gets exactly what he's talking about there, the, the nature of his patience, the nature of how God evaluates time, the nature of the, the imminency of the day of the Lord. And it does sufficiently suit even 11 through 13. I do see it as a unit, so I made that choice to title it together because the whole of the section is unpacking a proper understanding and response of the sure promise of Christ's return, the very thing which the mockers were mocking. But here um, in this section... Our verses 11 through 13, so the latter part of our section, there's a shift from the timing and character of Christ's return to our response to it. So we have the timing and the character of it to now our response to it, a shift that will speak of the character not of those who reject and scorn and mock this promise, but now to those who eagerly anticipate it. But to more fully appreciate this uh, shift in focus, I should probably begin by maybe rephrasing what I've even called this transition here, as it's, it's less of a, a shift and more of a, a precise narrowing. So maybe not a shift, but a narrowing of focus. As Peter has so much in mind, and he's strengthening these beloved believers with a view to our, to our blessed hope. And I want to cultivate some of this larger view to Peter's sweeping narrative. And with that, foster some of the momentum befitting this focused engagement. So we we study and we pause, we study and we pause, we study and we pause, but I want us to kind of capture what he's driving at here so that we get to that same kind of emphasis that I think he's cultivating within the passage itself. 
So first, I would remind you that a major thematic development through Peter's first letter, we're in 2 Peter, but his first letter was the prospect and reality of suffering. If you ask people, even uh, general Bible students, again, you can ask, what's Psalm 119, major theme? Ah, oh, the scriptures, First Peter, major theme. They'd likely say suffering. And we saw there's a lot more to it than suffering, but suffering is a very strong theme in First Peter. But it was not just a treatise on the pains of life or in the li- even the life of those who are in Christ. It's not just, well, life has suffering or no, no, it's not just that. It's that Christians will suffer. Well, it's not even just that. It was an articulation that righteous suffering is a reality. Righteous suffering is a reality and will increasingly be so for Christ's beloved. But we, are a, we have a most perfect example that's, exa- that's made plain over and over in First Peter. Our perfect example is Christ himself who perfectly suffered, righteously suffered, and so we, we see that the letter, through those things, through a perfect example and through instruction, cultivated a more precise treatment of suffering, namely that present and temporal suffering will yield to future glory. So we walked through that. We saw that developed in a number of ways. Now, this did not mean that Peter promoted an indifference to this temporal life in a fallen and antagonistic world as though we just got to get out of here. We just, we got to make it. We're sojourners, we're exiles, and we're craving that exit door. It's not just that. It's not, well, present suffering yields to future glory, so just get through it. Rather, as we'll see later in our study today, he provided a range of commands and exhortations on how to walk well in this time of sojourning. This is where the Lord has us, and this is the time that he has us, and it may very well be a context of righteous suffering, so how do we walk well there within? And a critical element to this did include one of his first commands within the letter, namely 1 Peter 1.13 where we're commanded. It's not just, well, this would be a really good idea or, hey, let's cultivate this as a church body. And this is a command to fix your hope, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A command that was then intimately coupled with the call and expectation to a life of holiness, to a life of holiness. This will will continue to be a most natural pairing, namely a sure expectation and a view to Christ's return and a righteous life in the present. So again, he's cultivating a view to Christ's return with a life of holiness in the present. And we could call this eschatological ethics. And I'm sure if you Google it, somebody's probably already coined that. They've probably used it in some way that I would be very, very grieved that I've used a like term. I think it makes sense. So eschatological ethics, but really that's not even necessary to say eschatological ethics because I would say eschatology essentially frames everyone's ethics. You might think, well, that's, a, that's the doctrine that people struggle. I think it shapes everybody's ethics, believers and unbelievers alike, as how you understand either one's personal conclusion or the conclusion of all things will perhaps more than anything else impact your present conduct. That's why the mockers are mocking, right? They're trying to undermine a future judgment because if Christ doesn't return, there's no judgment, there's no accountability, and we can live as we so desire in the carnal lust of the flesh. So Paul makes, I would argue, the same uh, case in his engagement of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, that if there is no resurrection, then you know what? Just spend your life accordingly. And by the way, we've wasted ours. So eschatological ethics is, is nothing novel. It's just giving a title to a universal reality, but a reality that should uniquely impact Christ's church. So again, we're seeing a thematic foundation established through Peter's first letter in view of these things, that present suffering yields to future glory, and that impacts how we live in the present. So a sure fact that is established is the, in the promise of Christ's return is that future, again, this present suffering yields to future glory. That's all tied to Christ's return. And then we advance to Peter's second letter. So that was a large general view of First Peter. And as we advance to Peter's second letter, and we observed in his first letter here again, he gives the whole of his first chapter or opening section of his letter to the glory of our salvation in Christ and the outworking of that in the believer's life. We saw that in 1 Peter chapter 1, our glorious salvation in Christ and how that expresses and works itself out. And then in 2 Peter does something very, very similar. He talks about your identity in Christ and, and how to flesh that out. And again, so with both his chapters, he also finished 
with the extolling of God's word. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, you have the, um, the imperishable word of God by which we've been redeemed, and then he bleeds that over to chapter 2 with having a, an appetite for the scriptures. Well, in 2 Peter, he expresses it as the testimony of the apostles and the words of the prophets as he's heading into his engagement with the false teachers. He's esteeming the sure word of God, or again, the apostolic testimony and prophetic word. Then, as he advances in his second letter, Peter directly exposes and addresses the false prophets in chapter 2. So chapter 1, foundation and charge for believers. Chapter 2, an exposure and rebuke of the false prophets and teachers. And then, mockers in chapter 3, both of whom are making their respective attempts to distort, manipulate, and or discredit the scriptures. So some people would argue that the mockers and the false teachers are the same company, that it's just a different expression. That's possible. I'm not going to argue one way or the other. I don't think we really have a, a place to say this is them or it's not them or it's two different company. What we do know is they've been identified in two different ways or it is two different companies, but both are doing the same thing at the core of it, namely distorting, manipulating, and attempting to discredit the word of God be it by teaching and leading others astray, or be it by undermining and challenging it. So as an engagement of the mockers, Peter draws out uh, what I would say is either their primary or at least their particularly severe offense of challenging or assaulting the sure promise of Christ's return. So Peter then answers the folly of the mockers' arguments and concludes with this sobering statement, that but by his word, let me get that up there for you. Um, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So he's answered them, and then at the end of his argument, the present heavens and the earth will be destroyed by divine heat, divine fire, kept for judgment and the destruction of ungodly men, to include the false teachers, to include the, the mockers, to include anybody who's not submitted in faith and repentance to Christ. And so we have... First Peter, present suffering, yielding to future glory, directing us how to live well now and to have eternal perspective. Second Peter chapter 1, a foundation for believers. Second Peter chapter 2, a rebuke to false teachers. Second Peter 3, an exposure and rebuke of the mockers, which again finishes with, look, there's a righteous judgment that's coming. And then following this, Peter speaks to the nature of God's timing in such matters, further answering the folly of the mocker's arguments. The conclusion in this was that God has a different engagement and appreciation of time. It's not that he's indifferent. It's not that he has no um, perception or valuation of time. He has a different engagement and appreciation of time, but in ways beyond what we can fully appreciate as he engages in and with time and thereby is expressing patience with every day that passes. Again, that's that's hard for us to get our minds around, isn't it? The fact that God experiences time on some level, chooses to engage his creation so as to have compassion with the passing of days and urging men to repent. A patience that will come to a sudden and unanticipated conclusion. This is what we talked about last week with the rapture of Christ's church and thereby inaugurating the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, we talked about it last week. It's a, it's a strong theme throughout the Old Testament scriptures, especially. It continues into the New Testament. It's a season of unprecedented and unprofound judgment that will conclude with divine heat destroying the present created order and the bringing in of the eternal state. Now, we also discussed that the day of the Lord will include the tribulation, which will conclude and yield to the, the binding of Satan and the thousand-year reign of Christ from Jerusalem. Again, I would argue, not only for the fulfillment of many promises throughout the whole of the scriptures, but also the value that the Lord has attributed to time. At the, at, as this time of Christ's reigning will not be an arbitrary exercise of honoring promises as though, well, I need to have an earthly reign. I need to have it for a period of time because, well, I said I would. I think what's happening with that, he's expressing there's value in the passing of days and weeks and years. There's value in time, and he's engaging in time in a most magnificent way, obviously, throughout the millennial kingdom for the thousand years. And it's, again, a value, it's an expression of God's magnificent plan of redemption, but it expresses value, value in this present experience, albeit it will be a radically different expression. Then at the conclusion of the millennial kingdom, we know that Satan is released, leads one final rebellion, which is decisively stopped. And it's followed by the great white throne of judgment, after which there's the instituting of the new heavens and new earth. 
Well, that was a lot. Why'd you cover all that? Because Peter sweeps through all that in a matter of a verse or two. But he has all that in mind. All such matters are in view as Peter concisely speaks of the day of the Lord in chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. And all such matters are in view when he considers the nature of the Christian's conduct in our time of sojourning. All that impacts how we walk now. Now, one last matter I'd like to speak to before um, reading our passage together is Peter's use of time in chapter 3. Again, I think this is valuable, but I do want to be careful here as I'm drawing this out because I believe it's a helpful observation and not because I'm persuaded that Peter wanted us to draw timelines from his engagement here. I don't think he said, listen carefully to how I use time markers decode it and make a nice timeline. I don't think that's what he's getting at. But what I do believe is that it'll get us, by drawing it out, it'll get us to where he is pressing us, to a view to living in light of God's historic work, our present place, and that which is before us. See here, in chapter 3, Peter has made reference to and drawn from five major points in redemptive history. Or perhaps better stated, God's redemptive plan is there's still chapter still before us. So redemptive history, I speak of past, but also with a view to the future. So first, we have a reference to creation. By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Second, we have a reference to the one great historic cataclysmic judgment of the entire world, namely the Noahic flood. The world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. Third, we have the present experience of God's patience. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then fourth, we have the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. And then fifth, and finally, we have the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, how is this helpful and what way does it contribute to what Peter's plainly exhorting us to in this final section of 8 to 13? Well, I would argue that Peter is drawing out that you do not properly understand our present world, nor that which is to come by way of judgment and ultimately the new creation without first understanding these historic matters. He's framing his argument first with a view back, rooting it in the scriptures, but also the historic accounts reflected in the scriptures. Remember, that was part of the mocker's deficient argument, their lack of attentiveness to historic facts in God's redemptive plan. For when the mockers mock in this way, where's the promise of his coming? Everything's just as it was. It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. Creation and then first major cataclysmic judgment, unlike the world's ever seen before or since to the present. And so also having a view to the end of all things, we better understand our present experience of sojourning in a world that is mired by sin and antagonistic to the things of God. We understand that these matters will come to a, a full and fitting conclusion. And in the meantime, we also understand what serves as a stopgap to this sure finish, namely the, pres- or the patience of God. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So here we are, right there in the middle of this timeline that Peter has not necessarily said, lay this out, put it, put it on a grid for me here. But he's laid out a clear chapters in redemptive history, and in this place that falls most immediately between what? The two great judgments and two creations of the heavens and the earth. And I think Peter, in some measure, has everything that we've covered to present this morning in mind. I think all these things inform what he's about to charge us with, namely when he goes on to speak how um, most precisely about our conduct. Our conduct is informed by how we understand righteous suffering. Our conduct is informed by our standing and progress in the faith. Our conduct is informed even by the negative example of the false teacher and the mocker and God's plan as it unfolds. And to be most precise, 
he has a view most immediately to the day of the Lord and ultimately to its glorious conclusion. So, inasmuch as, inasmuch as it is possible, keep all that in mind. Just hold it there as we read our passage together, primarily with a view to verses 11 to 13, but we're going to read all of chapter 3, at least 1 through 13, and I want that to at least be um, simmering in your mind, as it were, to, to, to dwell on those things, to let it inform the charge that he's built up to now. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, Peter writes, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, Where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So again, here we are. Since all these things, all these things... Most immediately mindful of the day of the Lord, but mindful of righteous suffering with a view to future glory, mindful of your position and maturity in Christ, mindful of the challenges that have been presented, and mindful of God's redemptive plan being unfolded. Since all these things, we're heading to the day of the Lord, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat? What sort of people ought you to be? Kind of sounds like a, an intensive question, doesn't it? Not rhetorical in nature. No, it would, it would demand an answer if it was a question, as it might first appear to be. It, it very much sounds and, and almost is structured like a question. And indeed, that's how some translations have chosen to frame it, probably to smooth that out a little bit. But this is more of an emphatic statement. What kind of people are you to be? This kind of people is who we ought to be. Now, in terms of the, the grammar with this, D. Edmund Hebert explains the adjective rendered what manner of persons is not so much a question as an exclamation of astonishment. In view of God's magnificent plan unfolding and in view specifically and most immediately to the great day of the Lord, what kind of people are you to be? Well, people of holiness and people of godliness, people looking expectantly. One of my favorite passages uses the term in a like manner in a very similar context as well. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 states, see how great a love the Father has given to us? Not a question, it's, you see this. See how great a love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and we are. And if you continue to read 1 John chapter 3, we're waiting, we're looking, we're not as we will be, we will be like him. So I've asked you to hold a lot in mind as we came to our passage now. And in fairness, most of it was drawn from our, our long journey with Peter through his, ter uh, through his two letters. But if we can only grab hold of something nearby, sometimes too much is going by, you just grab the closest thing. So we grab the closest thing, then the immediate context demands our attention be directed to, again, the day of the Lord. Since these things are to be happening, since the Lord will righteously judge all people and all creation in this way, 
What kind of people are we going to be? The time in which the Lord will exercise his most intensive judgments upon this creation and the unbelieving world, at the conclusion of which he will usher in the glorious eternal state for those of us who are in Christ. But we have to recognize, again, this is a pronounced emphasis on God's holy judgment. And he's asking, in view of this, in view of this, it's not a matter of fear for the believer, so that's off the table, but of righteous provocation. Remember, we talked about that last week. He's, I think he's provoking us in the best of senses, which is, again, what he's getting at now. Namely, the manner of life that God's good promises both demand and naturally produce within us, even his promises of righteous judgment. And I would remind you, he's not asking, how should we live in view of these things? Rather, he is declaring to us, you live in this way. We live in this way in view of God's righteous and just judgment, in view of the culmination and end of all things. We live in holy conduct and godliness, looking expectantly for the day of God. Therefore, this is not a a time of of wanton pleasure and indulging oneself as much as possible as we head to some some fatalistic or fantastical conclusion, but a time of sober daytime vigilance that is confident and faithful. That's how we live. That's not a question. That's a fact. A time of holy conduct, which could be expressed as life patterns that are set apart unto God. That's holy conduct. Life patterns that are set apart unto God and one's behavior, conduct, and your decisions. A time of godliness. Godliness, we've talked about before, can be expressed as having the character and conduct of of one who walks before God. Your path is clearly as one that is before God. One who has a view to the Lord as they, they exercise their responsibilities throughout their day. This is our expected life in view of Christ, sure and promised coming in view of the day of the Lord. And as I've expressed earlier, I see a a strong continuity and clear development of theme between Peter's letters. I've already alluded to that, but especially I see this as the longer we've been in 2 Peter now, and I've reflected back on 1 Peter, particularly in these matters, as he exemplifies the, what I would call the apostolic vantage point of negotiating this time of sojourning by means of having one's bearings fixed in eternity. We get there because we, we have a view to the eternal state? Do we have a view to eternal glory? And with this, he quite plainly lays out for us what I've called, again, eschatological ethics or conduct informed by the end. So with this in view, I want to walk through several examples of the nature of this holy conduct. The charge and the, the exclamation, this is who we are, that's plain. Now, what does that look like? Well, I think he's already unpacked a lot of this for us. So what does holy conduct and godly life look like? as uh, plainly expressed for us throughout Peter's letters. I want to unpack that for just a little bit um, because this gives us direction. It gives us help. It gives us a, a, a clarity. When he declares this, he's not asking. When he declares it, what is this path that we're walking? So let's walk through a number of examples. Um, the first one we've already introduced a moment ago. I thought it was a critical passage, namely 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. Now that one and a number of others I would argue, are explicitly tied to Christ's return. And that's mindful of our immediate context. Others, I would say, are implicitly tied to Christ's return. But Christ's return governs these things. So let's walk through a few examples or a number of examples of when he says we conduct ourselves in godliness and holiness or holy conduct and godliness, what does that look like? Let's peel it back because he's already told us. So let's walk through some of these. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. He states, therefore, having girded your minds for action, be sober in spirit. So we have clear thinking. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not being conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we have minds girded for action, a sober spirit, and a fixed hope. Not being conformed to worldly lust, but pursuing holiness of life. So very, very clear instructions, very clear pattern. First Peter 1, 22 to 23. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a love of the brothers without hypocrisy, fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. That is through the living and enduring word of God. This is one of our, our favorites here at Grace Bible. I remember when preaching through it in Frank's driveway, and 
talking to you about moving heavy boxes and just like you pick up something that's so heavy, you hear strange noises coming out, not out of the box, but out of you. It's that earnestness. And that's the nature of how he commands us to love one another. And so here we again have the command to fervently, vigorously love one another. This is holy conduct and godliness. 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So a call to the nurturing of our souls in and by the word of God, to be like that Psalm 1 man who is a tree firmly planted by streams of water. This is holy conduct and godliness. 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Again, very clear eschatological focus, abstaining from worldly lust. That's not just good counsel. That's not just make life happy, make it simpler, make it better. That's godliness. That's holy conduct with a view to the eternal state. So it's um, also a vigilance uh, from warring foes, um, namely that which would assault the soul, namely sin. And with this exercising good works before a cynical and unbelieving world, you might think, well, that sounds so very plain, but that is our charge. It doesn't have to be sensational or even overly exciting to say daily faithfulness is living out holy conduct and godliness. And that with a view to the end. 1 Peter 3, 1 to uh, 2, and then verse 7 as well. In the same way, you wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that, in, that even if in, in if you are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, as they observe your pure conduct without fear. And then skipping to the husbands, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So we have submission and faithful leadership in the home. That's godliness and that's holy conduct. Matters that, that sometimes are very complicated and they have unique challenges, but this is the call to how we are to live holy and godly lives with a view to the eternal state. Well, that sounds so mundane. My home is just my home. It has a view to eternity. 1 Peter 4, 1-2. Again, a very clear connection here. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to no longer live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So purposing to live for the will of God often includes suffering. That's part of holy conduct and godliness, is that there well may be suffering included. It is likely that suffering will be included, that you will suffer just like our Lord has suffered. And that's a good place to be in. If you're going to suffer, Peter makes it clear, you don't want to suffer for sin, but for righteousness sake, entrusting yourself to a faithful judge and understanding that it's a purifying suffering and will yield blessings beyond today, something we can appreciate now, but especially with a view to eternity. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 if this isn't plain enough with a view to the end, the end of all things is at hand. Okay? Therefore, be of sound thinking and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is one speaking the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. Amen. So, what does holy conduct and godliness look like? It looks like being a people of prayer, right? People of prayer, people who love and forgive one another, and a people who exercise the gifts that the Lord has graciously provided as body. This is daily living in view of the eternal state and a view of the things to come, and even in view of God's righteous and total and absolute perfect judgment. 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire trial among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Again, suffering with a view to future glory. You suffer now, 
with a view to Christ will be exalted. And when he's exalted, namely when? Well, we certainly have a clear view to that with the coming of the day of the Lord and the full and final expressions of those things. We can rejoice in that. 1 Peter 5, 5, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Again, exercising humility. This is godliness. You might think, well, that's not very attractive. That's not very exciting. Especially in view of the day of the Lord, that's so big and magnificent. Holy conduct and godliness includes humility and prayer, submission and walking well, even suffering. And then 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. This will be our, our final example and one that should be most immediately coming to mind from our walking through the book. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your brother, and your godliness, brotherly love, and in your brotherly love, agape love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these things, does that sound familiar? These things, I hope you remember these things. We gave no small measure of attention to them in the early weeks of our study in Second Peter. And supplying your faith with these things will yield a fruitful life and a clear confidence at Christ's return. So we can plainly see that Peter, in his two letters, has provided us a rich well of examples of the nature of the life that he expects of Christ's beloved in view of the Lord's sure return. It's not that, I'm not sure what do I do with this magnificent promise, or it's just, well, it's some thing I can dwell on. No, it, it demands action. Since these, things are to, since these things are true, since these things are unfolding as they are, what, what kind of people? Well, this kind of people, lives of holy conduct and godliness. But that's not all Peter has stated of our identity and conduct, is it? We're also a people who are looking with great anticipation, or as Peter stated it, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat. So we are a people with lives of holiness and godliness that are shaped by a disposition of anticipatory looking and longing. That informs our holy conduct, that informs our godliness, that we're looking and longing. This is not a passive disposition. It is actively looking, actively expecting, actively longing for that which you know is coming. What we don't know is when. So there's a vigilant readiness while we wait for the coming day of God. The coming in day of God, which I understand to be another way of referencing the day of the Lord, though with perhaps a more emphatic view to its glorious end. There's uh, a lot of strong wrestling with that, but I think that it's a view to the day of the Lord, especially to its glorious end. But it's clearly a day which will bring God's full, final, and righteous judgment upon creation and finish with the eternal state, expressed here as the new heavens, new earth in which righteousness dwells. And I love the, 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 the uses of the term for looking. Um, there's plenty throughout the scriptures, but we only have three used by Peter. And they're all clustered together right here. So the, here they are so intensely shaping and expressing our identity. So after a truth-rich exhortation in chapter 1, and exposing and rebuking the false teachers in chapter 2, and a decisive answering of the mockers in chapter 3, which is now followed by a description of the beloved, a people who are looking, actively, vigilantly looking. That's how he describes us. We're people who are looking, looking, looking and expecting, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, looking for new heavens and new earth, looking for these things. So it's 12, 13, 14, we are looking, we are looking, we are looking. You think Peter is trying to drive something here? In view of the end, we are longing and expectantly anticipating. And consider that for a moment, especially in view of the fact that we've reaffirmed at the outset of this year with our special attention on Psalm 1, 
and our continued examination of Psalm 119, that, that we want to be a people of the book, right? We want to be a people of the scriptures. But now Peter expresses that a people of the book, you know how we can also consider and try to posture ourselves? He says the people of the book are also people on the look. So those who love the book are on the look. So you, you look, you long, you expect. That's the nature of those of us who love the scriptures. We're actively looking and expectantly longing. But you may have noted by now that whereas I'm pressing that the nature of our looking is an expectant looking, that it appears that Peter's stating that it is a looking that is accompanied by our hastening or speeding up of the day of God. Further, if you're reading from the English Standard Version or even the Net Bible, uh, two translations that we love and respect for a variety of reasons, you'll see the translation choice here is waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So it would be a, in their expression, it would be a waiting that is potentially expedited. And this was a curious matter of attention for me. I would think it would be a curious matter of attention to you as well. And one that I brought to Pastor Frank and Matt Friday a week ago as we gathered to discuss and pray for the, the care of the church. Sometimes we'll discuss passages that we're working through or just passages that we're curious about, we're trying to understand better. And I was like, what do you do with this? How do we understand this waiting? And after all, don't, we not only want to get this passage right, right? That's our charge to teach with clarity and accuracy. But if there's something we can or should be doing to expedite or speed up the return of Christ, that's quite an attractive proposition, right? And we want to live holy lives. We want to live godly lives. We want to live expectant lives. But boy, if we can couple all that together and expedite Christ's return, then we can join John's prayer with come quickly, Lord Jesus, and then do something about it. Boy, we need to wrestle through that. And it's a matter that has genuinely motivated a lot of people to that end, particularly in the areas of evangelism and missions. We got to get out. We got to finish the work because when we finish the work, Christ returns. And there's reasonable grounds to wrestle with this. Initially, it's, I don't, not really comfortable with that. But there's reasonable grounds to wrestle with this as the terms other uses throughout the New Testament appear to consistently express the idea of expediting or rushing something. So don't come to a conclusion yet. We're just walking through this. So other uses, here's some samplings. We have the, the shepherds who received the angelic testimony of Jesus' birth. They, they went in a hurry to find Mary, Joseph, and the baby. Uh, Jesus engaged Zacchaeus with the call to, to hurry and come down, which is exactly what he's reported to have done. And he hurried and came down. Later, um, late in Acts, as Paul was being careful about his route and engagement as he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, wanting to be there before Pentecost. Paul also testified to his experience of the Lord telling him to hurry and get out of Jerusalem, as his testimony would not be received. So we plainly hear that tone of urgency being expressed, the shepherds getting to the baby, Jesus calls Zacchaeus down from the tree, Paul getting to Jerusalem, Paul getting out of Jerusalem. However, we also recognize that none of these examples were expressed by Peter. And we cannot demand the term be limited in its otherwise natural scope of usage, which can include both urgency and expectancy. And so maybe the term was used more broadly. Maybe it was used differently by Peter. And so we need to look at, well, how does Peter use it? Well, in Acts chapter 3, verse 19 to 21, this presents a different challenge to me. Peter appears to have been pleading with the Jews in the temple shortly after Pentecost to believe and thereby participate potentially in the expediting of God's plan. Uh, say, excuse me, Acts chapter 3, 19 to 21. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So, and there are matters of, also, you have the Olivet Discourse, which I have to not punt to Frank, I have to defer to Frank. What does Jesus mean when the, the gospels preach to all the nations? Is that, is that the angelic testimony in Revelation or is it something else? Um, what do we do with... Um, uh, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in and, and Paul's writing in Romans 11 through 13, when Israel's partial hardening is finally relieved when the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. 
matters that would appear to inform the timing of Christ's return and matters that are common expressions of our call to gospel faithfulness. Because all those are the fruits of gospel faithfulness, right? So how do we understand Peter's usage of the term here? Well, I would still press us to the conclusion of expectancy, of expectancy, but with the qualification that expectancy is expressed through vigorous applications of faithfulness. He's pressing us, be faithful, to include the declaring of Christ's excellencies to all persons, which in the context of unbelieving persons, it is a charge to declare the gospel, a gospel that expresses that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night, a time unexpected and unknown to all, a time that will conclude God's present expression of patience toward the unbelieving, that they might not perish, but rather would come to repentance. So, Faithfulness includes declaring, declaring includes gospel witness, gospel witness has a view to the day of the Lord and God's present experience of patience. So, might our conduct impact the timing of Christ's return? Well, if such is what God ordains, then yes. And I think that works, doesn't it? It holds us in a proper tension, and then like so many other matters, it's a tension and understanding and practice it's only resolved by faithfulness. That's the only way we're going to resolve it. We can't, we're not going to um, make anyone believe any more than we're going to manipulate God's timetable. We participate, but that's God's work. But it's God's work, but we participate. And so where does that leave us? It leaves us with the call to holy conduct and godliness. Because holy conduct and godliness will declare the excellencies of Christ to as many people as possible. And if that's how the Lord wants to expedite or time his return, then, then praise be to God that he has done his work through his people being faithful with a view to the day of the Lord and to the culmination of all things. So is that a sufficient resolution? I'm happy with that. I rest well with that one. But it is something hard, and it's something we have to wrestle with. So again, our charge, holy conduct, godliness, and expectantly looking, because as he so stated, because as he stated so plainly, the day of the Lord is coming, and when it does, the heavens will burning will be destroyed, the earth and the elements will melt with intense heat. To what end? Because they're going to yield to something. God will righteously judge all men, and that's a weighty reality. But it's good because he is just and righteous, and then it's going to yield to something most glorious. And Peter draws our attention to that here, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And this is what we're looking to now, a new heavens and new earth, just as the Lord promised through Isaiah so very long ago. So Peter is drawing from the sure prophetic word. Remember, he's already talked about the sure prophetic word, and now he's drawing from it and expressing what was beyond their scope to see or fully understand, especially as Isaiah 65 and 66 as language of both the millennial kingdom and the eternal state, both to be enjoyed in their proper order and fulfillment. And so now we wait. We wait for that sure promise to find its satisfaction and full fulfillment. And while we wait... You know, people struggle to wait, especially now. They always have to have something to do, something to fiddle with, something to just whatever. There's a lack of uh, capacity to, to wait patiently. But as we wait, we're not bored and we're not groping for something to occupy our attention. We're waiting eagerly, expectantly. I think of people waiting and um, you think about the situation. So last week we had guests from South Africa. It's a little unusual. It's kind of exciting to have friends in different places in the world. So we had guests from South Africa, and I think about their context, and I think about the context of someone meeting a loved one at the airport. And so I'm having to, to reconstruct. I don't know if this is exactly how it happens, so don't presume otherwise, but I can imagine and think reasonably so how something like this might have played out. So just this last week, our friend who he pastors in South Africa, he had to leave his wife and son behind until she was cleared to fly. It's the nature of our, our current world. And so there was likely, maybe not for him, maybe he's further in his progress of sanctification, but likely a degree of frustration. And if not frustration, at least longing to be reunited to his family as they had to separate for a time and across an incredibly great distance. That's a long flight. It's a long travel. But then perhaps Sunday afternoon, 
as Willem took them to the airport, they could say, oh, we made it. I know Willem drove us, but we made it. Um, they made it to the airport, and they could say, we've, we've boarded the plane. We've boarded the plane. And so now the, expe- the expectation's increasing, right? And it's a matter of, I don't know when, but I know they're going to be here. And there's a very, very long flight and then for the time of the arrival, it draws near, and then maybe he gets to the airport. He's watching the boards there in terms of the flight arrival times and delays and otherwise, knowing that they will be together at any moment. And perhaps he waited and watched, waited and watched, while strangers passed by until finally, ah, caught a glimpse of his wife and son and then rejoiced in their reunion. I think that's a fair presumption of something likely to happen. And I'm confident that his waiting and looking would have impacted his thinking and his conduct, right? We understand that. It should impact thinking and conduct. And so why it's not so hard for us here, is it? Because we're expectantly longing. And as if Christ's return in and of itself was not glorious enough to inform that expectancy and that longing With his return will also ultimately come the promised new heavens and new earth, produced by the holy creator for an eternal standing and fit for righteous habitation. That's amazing. Because is it any wonder that Peter writes to us as exiles and sojourners? No, no. you you live here long enough, you walk faithfully, you'll recognize, boy, we are exiles and strangers and sojourners as we expectantly look and long for Christ's promised return. So to ultimately join him in a place in which righteousness will find a home, that's precious because righteousness is so strange in this present world and it's becoming an increasingly strange reality. But it won't be strange there. And so we we have this contrast like, boy, things continue. How can we make sense of this world? We make sense of it because it's fallen, but we'll make sense of the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells and it will only be good and it will only make sense because it is good. Because righteousness will have a home. It won't be strange there. And we'll have a home also. So again, here we are. Between two magnificent, righteous, and cataclysmic judgments. And ultimately between two points of creation. The present creation that began some 6,000 years ago. And the awaited new creation in which righteousness will dwell. And we're looking eagerly looking. And again, here we are, a beloved people with a like faith to Peter and the apostles, a people who longingly expect and wait for Christ's promise and sure return, awaiting that has a view to his full, final, and righteous judgment to be expressed, awaiting that has a view to the instituting of the new heavens and new earth, awaiting that is invigorated by Christ's clear testimony of his return, and now all the more magnificently fueled by a view to this very moment the culminating conclusion of the day of the Lord and its yielding to a dawn of great hope and glorious experience of which the Apostle John, I'd say, gives us a magnificent peak. Isaiah provided pen to paper the promise that Peter said, this is promised and I'm confident of the word of the prophets. And then John had such a magnificent uh, opportunity to say, let's peel that back a little bit. Can we get our hands fully around it? No, but boy, do we have a really good look. And so to that end, I want to finish by refreshing and invigorating our view to what we're expectantly longing for and to let that fuel holy living, godliness, and this present experience. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. And being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. And he has on his garments and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, 
Come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of strong men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the, on the horse and his army and with his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who did the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them. And judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their witness of Jesus and because of the word of God. And who also had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on, the, on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who is a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no authority, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and, the fi and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sits upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead and the dead, great and small, and the small standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up their dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven and from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the trajectory that Peter says that we are heading to. The day of the Lord, the culmination of all things, the eternal state to include the new heavens and the new earth. That's the nature of our expectant, vigorous longing that informs our present lives of holy conduct and godliness. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, it's, it's absolutely of no surprise whatsoever that John, being a witness to these things, would finish with a petition that you would come quickly. And for these many, many years, we've watched and we've read, and we know the history of the church as a people of expectancy. Every generation expects and longs for your return. Every generation knows that it's at any moment, that it's at the satisfaction of your good pleasure and the fulfillment of all things. And yet generations come and go, and, and there can be a frustration, a curiosity as to why the nature of your timing, but Peter's made it very clear. It's because you're patient. You've been patient toward us. Um, everybody here that's in Christ experienced your patient for some season of time, be it um, in the early years of our youth or the late years of adulthood. You were patient, and your delay produced an opportunity and a reality of salvation. 
And so there's a tension. We desperately want you to come, but we also ask that you would have mercy on others because we know when the day of the Lord comes, it will come like a thief. And with it will begin the, uh, the unfolding of a righteous judgment unlike the world has ever, never, ever seen. But it will finish. And when it finishes, what a glorious and magnificent end. An end that informs our conduct. Peter wrote time and time and time again how we live in view of that day. How we, view, how we live in view of Christ's return. How we live in view of the eternal state. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help to calibrate our lives, that you would uh, produce in us a, a vigorous affection and longing for your return that informs holy conduct and lives of godliness. And the full expressions, the most mundane, the most challenging, I mean, people are hard. And it's, we have to wrestle with ourselves and our own sin. We have to wrestle with the sin and reality and just the life and culture that we live in. And then we have to wrestle with our families and our church and it's hard, and it's very, very, very mundane for the most part, but that's what you've called us to, and you're pleased with faithfulness, a faithfulness that's expressed with a view to your return. So, Lord, we ask that you would help um, awaken and invigorate that appetite, and for those who are not in Christ, um, pray that they would uh, have a proper fear, have a, a proper and righteous fear that their sin has not been answered for, and therefore, it will be held to an account. So, Lord, have mercy in this time of patience. And again, we give thanks to you. We long for that day, and we, we know it will be soon. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.